and try to get 21 different colors during the course of the week. So different shades of green, different shades of red and yellow and orange and blue and purple and even black. With your kids, you can even make it into a game. This is the Curious Neuron Podcast, where we take a compassionate approach to science-based parenting. Join us as we break down the science of child development and parenting into digestible and applicable advice. Welcome. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Curious Neuron Podcast. My name is Cindy, and I'm here with Marion today. Hi, Marion. Hi, Cindy. How's it going? I'm doing pretty well. I, I know for a fact that you're excited for this talk today. <laughs> I am. <laughs> the visual system. I, uh, I love talking about the eyes and uh, the importance of vision. I, I was saying earlier, I don't think it's uh, maybe as sexy as some of the other topics <laughs> that get shared on Instagram, but we have such mm. an amazing guest today and I love her Instagram account and she's really providing a lot of great information about why it's important to think about our eyes and not just for ourselves, but our kids and development. So it's mm-hmm. a great conversation. I've been following uh, Dr. Bannock for a while and she touches food and the topic of food. And some people might be wondering why we're going to bring that up. But we're going to talk a lot about stuff that are related to our children and their visual development and their health as well. So that'll be fun. Before we begin, we'd like to thank the Tannenbaum Open Science Institute for supporting the Curious Neuron Podcast. And if you are enjoying uh, listening to the Curious Neuron Podcast, please take a moment to rate it on iTunes and to leave a review. And you can follow us on Instagram at Curious underscore Neuron or follow the podcast itself at uh, Curious Neuron Podcast on Instagram. All right, let's start chatting with our guest, Dr. Rani Banik. Hi. Hi, good morning. It's so nice to meet you both. I, I know we've connected on Instagram and it's wonderful to have a chance to chat. Yes, I know. And I, I am really excited about this topic. There's a link between our visual system as well and the brain. And we're going to get into that as well. I'm talking about migraines. But Dr. Rani Banik is a neuro-ophthalmologist and has an account that is filled with information. Your account focuses doesn't focus on children. It focuses on adults, I believe, right? Both. I do try to post information that would be applicable to all ages. Mm-hmm. So let's just start our whole conversation with the first steps of the visual development. In infants, visual system is one of the first or the first to develop. What are some things that we should be doing with our newborns to help the system develop? So when babies are first born, um, their visual systems are not fully developed, as you just mentioned. Um, They can see mainly shadows and very blurry images. It's estimated that their their vision is in the range of about 2200, which is like the big E on the chart. Mm. So they're seeing their world very blurry. They do see better up close. So it's really important for them to be exposed to people's faces. And also um, during the first few months of life, when a lot of visual development occurs, it's really important to expose them to high contrast. For example, toys that are very bright and with high contrast. So oftentimes we recommend uh, red and black colored toys to help with visual development in those first few months. And then as the child develops over the first year, their visual system grows significantly. And usually by the time they reach about one year of age, their vision is uh, potentially almost 20-20, as long as there's no, no other issue going on, like a refractive error, for example. Uh, what, what is that? Refractive error is um, the need for glasses, whether someone's farsighted or nearsighted or has astigmatism. Oh, got it. Um, you know, in the absence of that, a child's vision should be 20-20 uh, by about the one year 
remark. So a lot of development mm-hmm. happens at that time. A lot of connections are developing between the eyes and the brain. So again, stimulation is very, very important. I, I was having this discussion with my mother um, when I had my firstborn and I had bought some high contrast toys or books and, and cards. And she was like, we never had any of those. <laughs> I'm curious to know. Um, you know, and she did say we spent a lot of our time outdoors. So I'm curious to know if there's a difference between, I guess, the old days or the my, my mom and my grandmother's days and, and our days now um, in terms of what the environment that we're creating for our kids. And is this something that we should really be looking for to purchase or are there other ways to do it? Yeah, so I'm so glad you brought up, you know, the fact that uh, in the olden days, we spent <laughs> a lot of time outdoors. So, you know, things mm. have really changed. Uh, we're we're living in this digital world, especially now during the pandemic. You know, so much of what we do is on screens for all for our children. Also, there have been these studies out of Asia that have shown that myopia, which is nearsightedness, is increasing at an exponential rate, and it's estimated that in the next ten to twenty years, the incidence of myopia is going to double. So, about fifty percent of the population is going to become myopic, and we think that part of that reason is because we spend so much time up here, you know, looking at things here, whether it's a phone, a tablet, computer. And so our eyes naturally should really be focusing at different distances during the day, you know, far, intermediate, up close. And, you know, if you think back to our ancestors, they really didn't spend so much time up here. They were looking in the distance. They were hunter gatherers and they were scanning their environment. They were outdoors. So this is a new thing. This is a relatively new thing where our eyes are constantly straining Mm. to look up close. So that's the theory as to why myopia has increased so much. As the solution to that. It's This is really, really interesting and very important research for parents to know about. There are studies that have shown that children who spend at least two hours a day outside, playing outside, have reduced rates of myopia progression, which is fascinating. So two hours a day. So there are even some schools now that really mandate that their kids spend two hours a day outside in recess. We don't know exactly what it is about being outside, whether it's sun exposure, maybe it's something to do with UV rays or blue rays and how our eyes are developing, or maybe it's simply just not being on a screen or, you know, being looking at something up close. We don't know why that is, but it's just something Mm -hmm. really important that all parents should be aware of is that two hour a day kind of uh, a rule or, you know, the aspiration to have your kids be outside two hours a day. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of parents from from places like here in Montreal, where we had such an, a cold winter. It could be very difficult to do that, but you just showed it with the research as well, and, and I've posted about this as well, that two hours a day is needed. What about the places where it is cold right now? Is there anything that we could do indoors? I'm assuming we cutting down screen time, which parents might not <laughs> enjoy hearing that. Is there something we could do indoors? Yeah, I mean, I always tell my patients um, that, you know, try to engage with your kids, whether it's just having a conversation, playing a board game, uh, we're playing a different type of game inside, you know, maybe something a little bit more physical, Mm. taking them to an, you know, if it's cold outside, taking them for an indoor sport, there's indoor tennis, there's indoor, you know, swimming, Um, there's just so many options now indoor soccer. So there's a lot of options to get your kids moving um, and off a screen. This is also something I wanted to mention is, so before the pandemic, Um, This was back in, I think it was 2016, Mm -hmm. the um, American Academy of Pediatrics, um, they released guidelines in terms of screen time for children. And um, I'll just go through the different age groups. So children under one year of age, they really recommended little to no screen time, maybe, you know, just a little bit of FaceTime with grandparents or something like that, but really nothing, not too much uh, significant time on a screen. Um, Up to about two years of age, 
less than half an hour a day. And then from two to five, maximum one hour. And then from six to 10, maximum two hours. And then beyond that, you know, we don't really have control over what our, our teens are doing. <laughs> so, but, but, you know, that's really interesting that even up to age 10, the maximum time that was recommended was two hours a day on a screen. And now everything is just completely changed mm -hmm. because, you know, our children for such a long time, many of them were doing remote learning. And even now, so much work is is on a screen, you know, when teachers are, are yeah. you know, uh, signing homework, it's on a screen, you know, they're, they're reading on a screen, they're reading, uh, you know, you know, books on, on their devices. And so it's really changed quite a bit. And so the American Academy of Pediatrics, they have not revised their guidelines as of yet, but we don't know what all of this screen time is mm -hmm. doing to our kids' development. There are some studies that suggest that increased screen time, particularly in the early years, can be associated with behavioral issues. Um, ADHD, for example, which I'm sure you're probably aware of. So, yeah. you know, that research is still being kind of teased out in terms of, you know, what the exact repercussions are of all this screen time, but it's just something to be mindful of as, as a parent. My, myself, I'm a parent and um, something that I've struggled with, you know, how much time do I let my child spend on a screen, especially during the pandemic when other, other activities may be limited. Mm -hmm. My, one of my friends, um, you know, she, she was trying to be mindful of the fact that her kids were doing this remote learning and, um, bought these blue light glasses, I believe for herself and for, I, I don't know if she, I think she said Amazon or something, but it, it, what is the, the research behind this? Are these really effective? And th is this a way to, kind of decrease as much as we can the, the effects of the screen in front of our kids, especially if they're doing remote learning? Yeah, great question. I get that question a lot about blue blocking glasses because there are so many manufacturers now out there. So the, the issue with blue blockers is that, first of all, there are different grades of blue blockers. You know, some of them look clear. They look like normal glasses. Some of them have like a very light yellow tint and some of them are darker. They're more orange or amber, even red. And so not all blue blockers are made the same, but let me just take a step back and explain about blue light. So blue light is part of the rainbow of colors, that visible light that we can see. And our devices emit a tremendous amount of blue light, um, as do other things. Like, for example, certain bulbs like um, CFL bulbs, you know, the energy saving bulbs that many of us have switched to, uh, CFL bulbs, LED bulbs, they all emit a lot of blue light. Blue light normally comes from the sun and that's natural, healthy blue light. It helps to regulate our sleep patterns, our circadian rhythm. But when it comes from devices, when we're getting this blue light at all times of the day, especially later on in the day, it can impact sleep. It can make it much more difficult to fall asleep, to stay asleep. Now, in terms of whether it actually has adverse effects on vision, the jury is still out on that. Um, the truth is, if it really caused vision damage or vision loss, we would be having an epidemic of blindness right now from blue light. So that's not the case. But of course, sleep and behavior and, you know, some eye strain as well. Like some people have light sensitivity from the blue light that's coming from their screen. They may have like headaches or dry eye symptoms. Or, so the question is, should you be getting these blue blockers to, to you know, negate all of these adverse effects? Um, the studies have shown that they definitely help with sleep. Uh, perhaps they help with behavior as well, particularly two hours before bed. So if your child is on a screen, you know, in the evening, two hours before bed, have them wear blue blockers and get the darker, the darker tint, because um, the darker the tint, the more blue light it's actually blocking. Um, again, in terms of vision, there are some controversial studies. One study showed that um, healthy people, healthy young, young adults who wore blue blockers for two hours really had no difference in their 
in their visual symptoms. So, um, you know, we, we don't have great guidance from the studies yet, but it's something important for health, for sleep, and um, for behavior. Also, other sources of blue light, for example, um, you know, if you have not just a screen, obviously, but, you know, in your bedroom, if you have a, a nightlight, for example, and it's emitting blue light, that even that can affect sleep and impair healthy sleep habits. So I oftentimes recommend switching to a warmer color night um, night light, like either red or orange, or even get a smart bulb. You know, they have these smart bulbs now where you can program it to emit different wavelengths of light depending on what time of day it is. So there's a lot you can do to mo moderate your environment and hopefully decrease the negative aspects of blue light. I was just going to ask about the the nightlight. I know a lot of people have nightlights and that's something that we, you know, there's a lot on the market, different types of, of, of nightlights. Do you, I know it does affect um, sleep in some ways. Do you recommend it or is it something that we should try and kind of cut out? Again, um, if, if you have it for safety, for example, you know, if you, you know, somebody has to wake up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. Um, it's important to have a nightlight or just a sense of security for a child to have a little bit of light in the room uh, rather than for it to be completely dark. Um, yeah. I would, again, recommend getting a warmer tone bulb, again, more in the in the orange uh, spectrum or even red spectrum to, to not have those negative impacts. Yeah, it's so interesting. I don't think, at least I study the visual system and I never really thought about that, like the different type of, of light that's being emitted. And, you know, you learn about, you know, going outside, but you don't think about there's actual different types of colors coming depending on where the sun is on, um, on the horizon. And I know blue blockers have gotten a lot of attention and people must be, at least I was, confused as to whether or not we should be getting them. Should we be wearing them all the time? You see people wearing blue blockers sometimes like first thing in the morning. So what would be the problem with wearing blue blockers all of the time if we're outside? Or like, it, should it really just be for you know, the conditions where it's late at night and we have to be on the screen? Yeah, no, great question. Um, I think we do need exposure to natural sunlight. So I do not recommend wearing them all the time. You definitely want to have your eyes exposed to all the rays from the sun, um, just, you know, for again, for healthy circadian patterns and sleep patterns. What I recommend is, you know, if you're using your screen a lot during the day and your eyes are feeling fatigued and you're having some eye strain, if you want to get a pair of blue blockers, you can get the lighter tint. And then towards the evening and really, you know, after the sun sets, wherever you are, um, that's when you should maybe switch over to the deeper colored blue blockers. I actually have two pairs that I wear when I, when my eyes are feeling tired. Um, the other thing you can do is each type of device has uh, some kind of internal uh, blue filtering or light filtering mode. So for example, on Apple devices, there's night shift mode and the device knows when the sun is setting and then it will adjust the output of light based on your time zone when the sun is rising, when the sun is setting. So that will limit the amount of blue light that's coming from your device later in the day. Mm -hmm. And um, you can also download, there are two apps that people can download to their computer or even their tablet or their phone that will also moderate the amount of blue light coming from the device. The, the one app is called Flux, F.L-U-X, which I know many people use. The other one is called Iris. I actually prefer Iris because it has a lot of uh, different modes and you can adjust the settings to what you feel most comfortable with. For example, 
Um, they have healthy mode, sleep mode, movie mode, um, gaming mode. So again, you can definitely um, play around with the different settings. I think there are 27 different settings in Iris and it's it's a nominal cost. I don't think it's very expensive at all. And you have the license for a lifetime. So I think it's worthwhile trying it and uh, maybe you know trying it on one of your family computers and, you know, seeing how your kids do with it and maybe then uh, downloading it to all of your devices. So what is it exactly? It's, a, it's an app that will monitor what kind of light is being produced by the, by the whatever application you're running? Yes, it adjusts the amount of light coming from your screen. So it does it internally. So it's not like a screen filter that you apply to your screen. It's internally. And I don't know, know exactly how the technology works, but you can see the difference. I mean, if you look at a screen with iris on it, it definitely looks more uh, subdued. Okay. It's not as bright. And then there's another aspect of Iris that I really like. And, and um, we can talk a little bit about more about this later as well. But for people who have light sensitivity, particularly for people who are prone to migraines, like I myself am prone to migraines, Iris is a great app because not only does it moderate the light, but it also takes out something called the flicker rate. And the flicker rate is most of us don't know this, but our screens are flickering constantly. They're going on, off, on, off, on, off. And um, they're built that way to preserve battery life. Um, so it's going so fast that our, our eyes can't see it, but our brains can definitely pick it up. And that flicker can trigger light sensitivity. And some people can even trigger migraines. And so that's why um, with iris, it can, again, eliminate that flicker rate. So you're taking out a major trigger for some of these visual symptoms people get, or even neurologic symptoms people get. That's so interesting. I, I've recently become interested in Lux. Uh, I was listening to the Andrew Huberman podcast and he was talking about the difference between natural light outside and, and Lux versus inside. And it's motivated me to get outside first thing in the morning. So I have this app, it's called Light Meter. And you can see, you can just shine it uh, wherever you are and see what the Lux is outside. And then you can compare the Lux versus inside and see that it's a huge difference. Even on a cloudy day, you have a lot of Lux. And so a lot of light intensity that's coming into your, your eyes and telling your brain basically what time it is. So now I have some, some more apps to try. <laughs> yes. Um, so our, what we get from the sun is in the thousands of Lux. I mean, what we get from indoors is much, much less. And, you know, again, probably that Lux has something to do with visual development. And maybe that's why, you know, again, children, just to emphasize the importance of kids getting outside. We don't know yet. At different times of day too, right? Like depending on where the light is. Yeah. Depending on, so when the sun rises, um, it starts to emit more blue light and it, the maximum amount of blue light the sun emits is usually between 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. And then it, the amount of blue light starts to go down and that, you know, in the evening, right before sunset, it's kind of signaling to your eyes and your circadian center, which is in the pineal gland, that it's time to wind down. It's time to get ready for bed. Mm. And when we don't have blue light exposure, then we start to release melatonin, which is a sleep hormone. So it also has to do with that as well. So it's really fascinating, the physiology of light and how our bodies are exposed to light and processing that light and, and regulating physiologic processes. This part is so fascinating to me. And I think of, of parents with young babies who are trying to get them on a certain rhythm, you know, for sleep with newborns. Um, I don't know if it was through you, Marion, or Huberman or somebody that I, I, I heard or read about the importance of this light for helping them get onto this, you know, rhythm of sleeping. Can you speak to that? Is, is that related to, to newborns as well? Um, I, I don't know in terms of newborn development because, you know, they sleep so 
so much anyway. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm assuming they most of them sleep between, I'm not a sleep expert, but I think they sleep between 16 to 18 hours in the first few months. And so, you know, when they do sleep, you know, it's probably best not to expose them to too much bright yeah. light um, to try to keep the room dim, um, or, you know, as dim as possible. So hmm. uh, yeah, I, it's an interesting concept or thought. Hmm. I wonder. Yeah. I thought I saw somewhere that um, there were some studies looking at maybe not newborn in the first couple of weeks, but that uh, getting them outside does help set their circadian rhythms a little bit um, more quickly, but I'd have to look that up. But yeah. I, I do want to, since we're talking about sun exposure, I just want to just say one thing. This is more of a PSA for me. Uh, that uh, information that I've talked about on my Instagram, but I want to get out there. So there is this practice called sun gazing. Oh yeah. And I don't know if you've ever heard of it where people advocate going out in the early morning hours and staring directly at the sun, you know, within the first two hours of sunrise to try to, again, set your circadian rhythm and decrease inflammation in your body and, you know, just health benefits in general. Um, what I will say is, um, it's, it's a little risky to do that for your, for your vision, because the sun's rays are so powerful that if you stare directly at the sun, you know, how if you look at the bright sun and you look away, you see an after image of the sun. Yes. So those yeah. rays are so powerful that not only can they cause an after image, but if you look at the sun for too long, it can actually cause a thermal burn in the retina. And if that happens, if you actually cause, um, it's called solar retinopathy for people who stare at the sun for too long. It can cause a permanent defect in your vision, like a, a small dot where you're not able to see. So again, I just want to um, counsel or, or just, you know, raise the awareness that yes, sun gazing may have some great health benefits, but don't look directly at the sun. If you want to do it, do it with your eyes closed so that the sun mm -hmm. is still getting through and, you know, your body's still getting exposed to, it, but it's not directly going to your retina or perhaps even wear some sunglasses, which is what I do. I always wear sunglasses when I go outside to limit that potential mm -hmm. risk. I guess. Yeah. On that point, uh, you don't have to look directly at the sun. So just going exactly. outside, even if you're not looking at the sun, your, your eyes are getting all kinds of natural light. And even if you're wearing sunglasses, I imagine it's coming in from, from all angles. Yes. You're still getting plenty of sun exposure. And as you mentioned, that Lux is so high that you're still getting all those health benefits, even if you're wearing sunglasses. I was just going to say, uh, if we could talk a little bit about sunglasses and. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. Like, should we be uh, mindful about putting sunglasses on our kids as well? I think about sunblock, we leave the house and we put their sunblock on, but I've never really put the thought into putting their glasses besides, you know, the cute <laughs> yeah, the <young>. cuteness. <laughs> the <laughs> yeah, besides the cuteness factor, I've never really thought about it for their vision. Is this something we should be thinking of? I think so. Um, I know that there's, mm. you know, different schools have thought about this, but I do think it's important to get kids into the habit of wearing sunglasses when they're outdoors. Um, there was some early work done that shows that children are not able to filter out um, UV rays as well as older you know, individuals like adults, you know, because the way their eyes are developing, mm -hmm. um, they're not able to filter out some of those UV rays that can potentially cause issues later on. And so uh, I do recommend kids wearing sun. My, my daughter, hates me for this because I always say wear your sunglasses, but, <laughs> but, um, I, I do recommend it, um, even on cloudy days sometimes, because uh, you know, that, that sun is so powerful. Um, UV rays have been associated with so many eye conditions from cataracts to later on macular degeneration to even tumors on the surface of the eye. I mean, so many 
negative visual effects. So it's worthwhile to instill uh, that, that healthy habit into your kids. And then the other question I often get is, you know, what type of sunglasses should I purchase? You know, uh, is it okay if I get, you know, the $10 ones or do I need to get like $300 ones? And what I tell people is the cost <laughs> is not really the, the issue. Um, you have to look for a label on the sunglasses that says 100% UVA, UVB filtering, which means that it's really protecting you 100%, or another label, an equivalent label, it'll, it may say UV 400. If it says either of those two things on the sticker, again, it doesn't matter if it's a $10 pair of sunglasses or $300, it's doing the, it's doing the job. So when you purchase them, especially for your kids, just always look for that little label on the sunglasses. That's such good advice because at least parents know, well, we lose them as adults. We, our kids lose them for sure. They will definitely forget them somewhere. But at least we could just be mindful of those um, points. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know, you spoke about health right now, and maybe we, that could lead us on to the conversation about health um, with our kids and their vision. Um, you do post about foods. I think I shared last night um, one with, that had some leafy greens, and somebody responded to me and said, are there children that eat these? <laughs> what do we have to know in terms of our children's visual health and, and their diet? This is one of my favorite topics. So thank you for bringing it up. Uh, We have actually built in blue blockers in our eyes. And those blue blockers are pigments that come from plants. And these pigments are called lutein and zeaxanthin. And there's also a third one called mesozeaxanthin. They're really hard to pronounce, but um, lutein, zeaxanthin, mesozeaxanthin. So I like to call them vitamins L, Z, and M for short, even though they're not officially vitamins, but these are um, compounds that we can't, our bodies can't make. So we have to get them from our diet and the leafy greens are the best source of these three pigments. Um, And that's why, you know, spinach, kale, collard greens, et cetera, are so important because our bodies, you know, when we eat these foods, our bodies absorb these pigments and then they deposit them preferentially in the retina. And these pigments are our natural sunglasses and blue blockers. So they absorb, absorb and neutralize UV rays. They absorb and neutralize blue light rays. So they actually prevent damage, oxidative stress damage from being done to our retinas. And later on in life, they're really important in the prevent, prevention of cataracts and macular degeneration. But for kids, especially now, because they're, they're on screen so much every day, it's really important to instill those, those healthy habits. And yes, it is not easy sometimes to get kids to eat, you know, to want to eat some of these items, but if you make it a habit, that's something that they will keep with them, you know, when they grow uh, into their teenage years, into their young adult years, if they go off to college, they will still have that habit in them that, okay, I need to get these different foods in my diet. And another, um, a simple way that I like to Mm -hmm. explain it to patients, especially parents is um, try to encourage, uh, you and your family to eat different colors uh, of fruits and vegetables during the week, because it's not just the leafy greens, but other colorful fruits and vegetables will provide your eyes with all the nutrients they need. And we need a whole variety of nutrients. So it's not that, oh, you just eat the leafy green every day and then your eyes are going to be fine. Or you just eat carrots every day and your eyes are going to be fine. It doesn't work like that. You really have to have the whole spectrum of nutrients <laughs> and fruit and plants, you know, both, um, fruits, vegetables, also nuts, legumes, these all provide all of the nutrients our eyes need. So uh, the, the tip I give my patients is most of us eat three meals a day, uh, seven days a week. So that's 21 meals a week and try to get 21 different 
colors during the course of the week. So different shades of green, different shades of red and yellow and orange and blue and purple and even black. So really plan out your week in terms of the colors. And that way you don't have to think, oh, did I get my you know, lutein this week? Or did I get my vitamin C? But it's really important to get those mm. colors in. And you can even with your kids, you can even make it into a game, you know, maybe have like a, you know, post it on your fridge or something, you know, all the different colors and which colors did you eat today and make sure that they're getting that variety and try to shoot for that 21 color goal every week. So that's a, a quick little tip I like to give patients. I love that. And when it comes to healthy food, I think from my own experience as well with three young kids is the more involved they are in helping you prepare stuff, I find that the more likely they are to eat what they prepared, they feel proud and you know that they contributed. Um, but I, I, I do also want to look at the other end. I know that we've had some parents um, talk about their kids having um, either some sensory sensitivities, so color or texture is very difficult for them, uh, and they can't get certain nutrients in. Can, are, are there certain vitamins or can they get it in another form if their child really struggles with that? Yeah. One, one way to kind of um, manage the texture issue is to put it in a different form. So I love smoothies. Yeah, true. And that's a great way to mix in some fruit, just to add it, you know, a little bit of maybe sweetness to it with the greens. Mm. So, you know, you put a, you know, two cups of kale or spinach in with other fruits and like berries, for example, and they don't taste it. Mm. You know, they're getting the nutrients, but they don't necessarily taste that, you know, whatever, whatever they're sensitive to mm -hmm. in terms of vitamins. So Supplements, I do think that, um, you know, they should be supplemental to a healthy diet. They should not replace the foods. The foods come first. And then, you know, if you really think, oh, my child is probably not getting enough lutein, um, just as a guideline um, for adults, we should be getting 6.5 milligrams of lutein every day. And most people on a Western diet are probably getting only one to two milligrams a day. So so we're really deficient in that. And if you think you, you're deficient, your family's deficient, your child's deficient, yes, consider doing a supplement. And um, actually during the pandemic, I, myself and my family, I've, we're, we've all been taking supplements just because of the excess screen time. So there are gummy forms that are available for kids, which are great. <laughs> um, you know, think of it like taking you know, a piece of candy, yeah. um, but they're getting those nutrients. So if you have trouble with your child, eating some of these foods, try that. But again, it really should be a supplement to the diet, not a replacement for the foods. Yeah. That's so the other thing I should mention is um, eggs are also a great source of lutein and zeaxanthin. So that beautiful orange color of the yolk is actually the pigment mm. that, um, that we need for our eyes. So eggs are a great source, orange peppers, Anything orange, yellow is usually a good source of lutein and zeaxanthin. So not just the leafy greens. Carrots. I mean, everyone talks about carrots. <laughs> you know, I was raised with my my grandmother and my mom telling me that I had to eat carrots if I didn't if I didn't want to wear glasses when I grew up. And I, <laughs> I have glasses, but um, were they right? Were is there? I, I'm assuming with the colors you just mentioned that carrots are important as well. <laughs> carrots are important, yes, but they're the tip of the iceberg, and. Um, I'm glad you brought up the, the question about the glasses. So carrots have beta carotene, which gets converted into vitamin A, and we need vitamin A to help prevent against night blindness, to help prevent, prevent against dry eye. But carrots are not going to impact the refractive error of your eye. So we talked about refractive error before. 
before, whether you're myopic or nearsighted, farsighted, or you have astigmatism, carrots are not going to affect that. So I have a lot of people tell me, but Dr. Bannock, I eat carrots all the time. How come I'm, my numbers getting so bad? You know, how come my glasses <laughs> keep getting worse every year? And, and it's really hard to try to explain to them that that's a different you know, issue with vision. And at least if you wear the glasses, you're correctable. You can still see well, 2020, um, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't eat your carrots. <laughs> and, um, and again, like I was saying, carrots are the tip <laughs> of the iceberg. So I actually have a book coming out um, uh, and I'm still playing with the title, but I think I'm going to call it Beyond Carrots, uh, Complete Nutrient Guide for Your Vision. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> uh, because that it's not a myth. It's true that we do need carrots, but really we need so many more nutrients to keep our eyes healthy. You know, carrots provide the beta carotene. They have some other important antioxidants, but uh, we need over 30 nutrients to keep our eyes healthy. And the only way to get that is through a diverse diet. And since that's what I talk about in my book is what are the mm -hmm. other foods? Maybe my title should be Beyond Carrots, Best Foods for Eye Health A to Z. That's, I think, <laughs> that's something, another title I'm thinking about because I do go through like the whole alphabet. And, um, you know, if you don't like carrots, for example, or if you don't like leafy greens, there's so many other things you can use or include in your diet to get those specific nutrients. Maybe Cindy can pull the audience. Yeah, if yeah, it's true for the title. Yeah, you know, I, I'm thinking to some of the past talks that Marion have had and I have had with some guests, and it always comes down to variety in our diet and the different colors. It's so important for several aspects of our health, our health, and our children's health as well. Um, but it's a reminder as well that you know, for our visual health, we, our children need this variety, and it's important that we try to implement it um, into our everyday life. Yeah, yeah, I always love to say, eat the rainbow, which. Mm. probably you've heard. And the rainbow for children should not be Skittles or M&Ms. It should be no. <laughs> real whole foods. <laughs> um, I'm curious to know, I've been told with my own kids that they should see a doctor for the first time um, for their vision around the time that they start school. Is that across the board or should we be going earlier um, for various reasons? Yeah, great question. So um, when when you take your child for your annual uh, well child visit, usually the pediatrician will do a screen, like a quick screen. You know, they'll if the child is verbal, they'll have them read the chart or they'll just take a look um, in the in the eyes with some lights or the instrument called an ophthalmoscope. And if the pediatrician notes something unusual, then maybe they'll make a referral to a pediatric ophthalmologist. But otherwise, if your child is developing normally and there's no issues, uh, a child should have their first full eye exam before the age of five, around the age of five, before they start kindergarten. Uh, because oftentimes children, they don't know they can't express that there is an issue. You know, they may be seeing blurry, they may need glasses mm -hmm. or there may be some other issue, but they don't know enough to be able to let you know. <laughs> so, so that's why that baseline eye mm -hmm. exam is so important. And then afterwards, depending on, you know, what the baseline exam shows, hopefully everything is good. Then they could probably go like once every few years. Um, if they do need, end up needing glasses, then they should probably go uh, either every six months or every year um, throughout their childhood. But it is really important. Yes. Curious to know. So I also have astigmatism and um, my doctor had told me that if I would have been in a little bit earlier that they could have corrected it. Is, is this true? Like, can, is that something that if caught early, they can do something about it? Yes. Yes. So um, the, the term is lazy eye or in medical terms is called amblyopia. So when a child is not seeing clearly, because let's say they have astigmatism or they're very nearsighted or farsighted, if that refractive error is not corrected before the age of 10, 
the brain, you know, the connections between the eye and the brain, the retinal ganglion cells in, in the brain, um, that settles in before the age of, by the age of 10. So if you don't fix it before the age of 10, you kind of lose that window of opportunity to fix the problem. So maybe one eye is stronger than the other, or maybe both eyes are not quite 2020, you know, maybe someone sees is a little bit less than 2020 because that wasn't corrected early enough. So that is something that as an ophthalmologist, we're pretty um, uh, aggressive with, you know, we really want to uh, try to fix the problem before they reach that, that, you know, 10 year kind of milestone. Um, and sometimes it involves just simply wearing glasses. Sometimes it may involve patching an eye, you know, to strengthen the other eye, mm -hmm. or sometimes in, in, if a child has crossed eyes, for example, if their eyes are crossing or if they're drifting out, that may involve a surgery to straighten the eyes. Because if one eye is looking straight and one eye is crossed in, then the eye that's crossed in is not getting the same input as the eye that's looking straight. And this eye is not going to develop properly. So that again, really needs to be fixed before the age of 10. And again, the medical term for it is called amblyopia, but I think most people just refer to it as lazy eye. That's fascinating info. I, it's interesting because you're talking about it and I only found out about that recently, but when I was young, nothing happened. I guess they, I don't know if, if research changed, but they, nothing, you know, nobody fixed it. <laughs> I think I'd love to kind of close this conversation with um, migraines because this was the most common question that I received from parents. So I'm putting, I, I have never had a migraine, but I, I know people who, who have them and they can't function. I can't even imagine how hard it must be as a parent to, you know, suffer from migraines and have to continue your life as if everything is okay. Um, can you talk a little bit about migraines? What are they? Why, why are they different from headaches? Yeah. So, um, you know, migraine is not just a headache. And I, I oftentimes talk about this in my, in my social media, migraine is a complex neurologic condition. And it involves not just the headache part, but it involves other senses as well. For example, people can be light sensitive or sound sensitive or smell sensitive, touch sensitive. Um, sometimes it involves gastrointestinal symptoms like nausea or vomiting, cramping, um, just a feeling of unwell. Um, and sometimes it involves other issues like, like for example, dizziness, vertigo, um, uh, just, just so many symptoms can happen with migraine. And so there are very specific criteria, diagnostic criteria for migraine, but um, in order to diagnose someone with migraine, um, the patient has to fit, you know, this whole list of things, but the key is um, it can't just be a single episode. It has to be a certain number of episodes within a certain number of months. And the episodes have to be a certain of a certain type. Usually, usually not always, but usually it's one-sided. So, you know, many people, when they get headaches, they get tension headaches, it's both sided, they get, you know, in the forehead, they feel this yeah. pressure, but migraines typically tend to be one-sided. Um, it can sometimes be behind the eye, like a sharp pain or dullness behind the eye. And it usually is associated with one of those other symptoms, like light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, nausea, vomiting. Um, sometimes people can have vision loss with migraine. Sometimes they'll have an aura, which is uh, seeing flashing lights. So that's migraine. So again, migraine is distinct from other types of headache syndromes. And it can be quite debilitating. I mean, sometimes people have just episodes every few months or every few years and they manage it when it happens. But when it becomes more regular, as you mentioned, it can be very hard to function. And I myself have migraines. I've been through this where, you know, there was actually a period of time when I had a migraine every single day for two years. And wow. so it was really oh difficult as a, you know, as a parent, mm -hmm. as a, 
physician, you know, taking care of other people to function with that migraine. So um, it really is important to get the diagnosis and then to find uh, a doctor that you feel comfortable with uh, because each doctor has his or her own uh, way of dealing with it. You know, some automatically just write prescriptions. You know, they're basically like, I hate to say this, but like drug dealers, <laughs> pharmaceutical, you know, drug dealers, because they just write prescription after prescription. And that's what happened to me. Yeah. And the prescriptions didn't work. You know, the medications didn't work. And for me, it was really a matter of figuring out what my triggers were, making some really important lifestyle changes and dietary changes, and really fixing the problem from deep within the root cause of the problem, not just to put take a medicine and put a bandaid on it. So find a, yeah. a physician that you feel comfortable with who can work with you and get you to the point where you have control over your migraines and they're not debilitating. Um, it, again, it's really tough to you know, meet your responsibilities as a parent when you're suffering with migraine. It's very difficult to do that. So my heart goes out to everyone who, who has experienced this before because it is not easy. You, so you mentioned about like trying to figure out what the triggers are. Um, is there anything that a parent can do in that moment um, to try to bring it down? Many of the triggers are our lifestyle habits, choices. So hunger, dehydration, lack of sleep, too much caffeine or too little caffeine. So it can go both ways. Um, but those are the simple things. So if you're getting recurrent migraines, really think about this. So, you know, what's going on? Did I just eat something that maybe is triggering my migraine? Now, do I have some kind of a food sensitivity like histamine or some preservative in my foods that are triggering the headache? Am I dehydrated? Am I stressed? Am I just not sleeping enough? Because that was, those were all part of the reason why I was getting my migraines. And once I started addressing a lot of those issues, things started to get better. Um, and then if you're in the moment and, you know, you're really suffering with a migraine, drink lots of fluids. And if you really need to um, take, uh, take something uh, like Excedrin migraine, because that has a little bit of Tylenol, a little bit of um, aspirin and a little bit of caffeine. And sometimes in many people that will break the attack. Um, but if you're getting recurrent headaches then definitely talk to your doctor about what treatment options are best for you. Sometimes it's a combination of the lifestyle and dietary habits with medications. So I'm not completely anti-pharmaceuticals for this. It's really a combination of the two. Um, but once you figure out what your root cause of the migraine is, usually you can prevent it or you can catch it early and, you know, take some interventions. The other thing I, I should mention is um, mm -hmm. supplements are very, very important in this situation. So um, magnesium, many of us are magnesium deficient, and we know that magnesium deficiency is a risk for migraine. Um, also B vitamins are very important for our mitochondrial health. And, um, our mito we know that people who have migraine or chronic migraine, their mitochondria are not functioning optimally. So you really want to support your intake of B vitamins, or maybe even take a B supplement or, um, B complex supplement. So there's lots of things people can do for prevention, but even in the moment to help them with their symptoms. I'm also a big advocate of essential oils. So if you're suffering from chronic headaches and you're getting a really bad headache, you can take um, some essential oil, like a mixture of peppermint, lavender, frankincense, and rub it into your areas that are, you know, that are affected, even like uh, the back of your neck. Sometimes people have a lot of neck pain and strain that can lead to headaches, neck, shoulders, and then your forehead. And sometimes I even have people put it on the on their soles of their feet because it gets absorbed very well through there. So lots of things people can do for their hmm, migraines. Interesting. 
one of the questions that came up was from a parent who suffers from migraines and she was wondering if um, this will be passed on to her, her children. Is this something that's hereditary? It is. Yes. Mm. So unfortunately we don't know, there are many genes that are associated with migraines. So there's not a single, like a one-to-one correlation, like, oh, you have, if you have this gene, then you're definitely going to develop migraine. But um, we know that there's a family predisposition. And so the estimate is that if a parent has migraine, there is a 50% chance that their child will have migraine. If both parents have migraine, then that risk is increased. I don't know exactly the number, but it is increased. Um, what I will tell you is that it's not uh, uh, someone's destiny. Like if your parent has migraine, that's not your destiny that you will get migraine, but definitely you, your body may be sensitive to certain things. So just be aware um, you know, you want to moderate your caffeine intake, for example, you want to moderate your intake of processed foods, because sometimes those can be triggers. You want to make sure that you have healthy habits, your sleep habits, your, you know, eating regular meals, like not missing meals, not skipping meal times, all these things. If you're, if you're a parent and you have migraine and you want to make sure that your child has healthy habits, just teach them all of this early on. And for example, with my daughter, I tell her, you know, you, you're, you're prone, you're, you're, predisposed to migraine. Hopefully you never get it, but you're predisposed to it. So learn those healthy habits. Now, mm-hmm. make sure you're hydrating. Well, make sure you're sleeping well. And I also tell her like, stay away from caffeine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't start that habit. Cause I was yeah. a big caffeine addict. I was having, this was crazy. I was having between 10 to 12 cups of ca- caffeinated beverage every day during my, my wow. worst part of my migraine. And I didn't even know that that was contributing. Even as a physician, no one told me like, <laughs> why don't you try to cut down your caffeine intake to help you with your migraines? No, I never even thought thought of the connection, but I tell parents like, don't even get your kids started on caffeine because it's caffeine is kind of like, you know, just keep going up and up and up and that can propagate your migraine and your threshold for migraine. So mm-hmm. just be aware of all these things. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering headaches and, and migraines, do they start only after a certain age? Um, I'm thinking, you know, like if if we had a big weekend with the kids and we're all tired, my husband and I will get headaches, you know, and my kids are just thriving <laughs> and they've never even expressed a headache yet um, or pain, you know, in the head, in their head. Um, does it only start after a certain age? No, actually, children can get headaches, different types of headaches, but children can mm. also get migraines. Um, but their migraines manifest differently. So in adults, you know, we typically have the headache part of it. Children, interestingly, tend to get more gastrointestinal symptoms with migraine. So they may not even have a headache. They may have vomiting, like severe vomiting, and then they feel better. Like they may be feeling ill for some time, then they vomit, and then all of a sudden, that's like a miracle. Now they're back to normal. Um, they may have increased urination, increased stool frequency. So it's really interesting. Um, And this is all moderated by the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is what connects the brain to the gut. And we think that in pediatric migraine, that that is, you know, a major reason for why their symptoms are more GI type symptoms rather than headache type symptoms. Hmm. Um, So it's really interesting. And there's even some... um, some work that that shows that even babies can get migraines again, not the same type of, Hmm. you know, symptomatology that an older individual would have, but it's thought that um, babies who are more colicky, maybe predisposed to migraine. Of course, that's not um, across the board, but if you have a strong family history of migraine, 
and your baby is colicky, then there's a chance that that may develop into migraines later on. It's fascinating. I, I had no idea. And something that's that's interesting as well is you've made reference to our nervous system a few times when talking about the visual system. I think it's important that we talk about the connection between the two. Um, can you talk about the link between the nervous system and visual system? Yes. So as a neuro-ophthalmologist, this is my passion, <laughs> uh, <laughs> is you know improving awareness of the connection between the eyes and the brain. So the eye is actually a direct extension of the brain. So in development, it directly comes off the brain. So it's considered part of the central nervous system. And um, much of our brain is actually devoted to our vision. So it's estimated that, that about 30% of our brain is devoted to our visual system. So not just what we see, but how we see it, motion, color, contrast, memory, our eye movements, our eyelids, you know, how our, our facial expressions, a lot of that is the visual system. So you know, there are many conditions that affect the brain that also affect vision. Uh, for example, people who've had uh, concussions, stroke, um, brain tumors that can affect vision. So there's a very, very close connection between these two organ systems. Um, and in fact, some of them, some people even consider it as a single organ system, but the, the eye has some unique features as well. So I like to still think of them as separate, even though they're very closely connected. I'm glad that you brought up the, the concussions. That, that's something I had studied for a little while. And, you know, when you hit your head hard, or even your child, it's so important to monitor, like if they're sensitive to light, if they're having a headache that's persistent and not going away. Um, but yeah, that's another, I think, something we should talk about at some point on this this uh, topic, because returning too early um, could have you know, implications. Yes. I actually see a lot of concussion patients with visual symptoms. Um, light sensitivity is probably one of the most common plus headaches, uh, difficulty reading, uh, sometimes even seeing double vision where they're seeing like mm. two images side by side instead of a single image, like the images are split uh, or just difficulty tracking. So these are all very common visual um, sequelae of concussions. And in the beginning, um, now I'm not a specifically a concussion specialist, but in terms of the eye symptoms, what I recommend is uh, most, most people benefit from an in initial rest protocol where they're really off mm. most visual stimuli. So no screen time whatsoever mm. for one to two weeks is typically what most con my concussion colleagues yeah. recommend. And lots of sleep. Yeah. Um, they usually recommend anywhere from uh, 14 to 16 hours of sleep and uh, lots of hydration and some vitamins as well. Many of them do recommend the magnesium that we talked about, as well as the B complex or B2, which is riboflavin. Um, so uh, there's a lot that needs to be done early on. And I think now as a society, we're much more in tune with concussions mm -hmm. compared to maybe when we were younger, um, you know, you hit your head, you don't really think much about it. You just yeah. go on with your life and your activities. But now I think we really understand better the repercussions of concussion. And if you don't take care of it early, it can develop into chronic symptoms and you really don't want that to happen. Yeah. I'm glad that you mentioned the rest period because when, when I was doing this in the lab, the parents thought rest just meant stay home. You're not going to school because you, you had a concussion um, and you could watch TV or read all day and just rest. Don't move, but you're resting. Uh, but the rest really is cutting everything out, any visual stimulation whatsoever for two weeks, which I know from a, as a parent, that must be really hard to do, but it's so important for the recovery because anything, you know, even just watching a screen that your brain is activated and you're not resting it. 
I'm curious to know with your work um, if there are any myths or misconceptions within this field um, that you would like to address with us. You know, you you uh, mentioned before a, a PSA. Is there is there anything else that perhaps we haven't mentioned um, and that perhaps parents haven't thought of when it comes to our children's visual health? Um, there are lots of uh, myths out there <laughs> with eyes. <laughs> I think uh, we touched upon a lot of them. Actually, we touched about you know about carrot. We talked about carrots. We talked about blue light. You know, there's some media pressed out there a few years back that said, oh, blue light is going to blind you. It's going to make you go blind. So stay off your screens. And that's not true. We know that. Then other things like behavioral things, like um, sitting too close to the TV, mm. is that going to ruin your eyesight? But that's a common one. I think mm. we were probably all told as, as kids. Um, not not necessarily. No, um, it all depends on your refractive error, of course. But um, just simply by sitting you know, this close to the screen is not going to make your vision get worse. Also reading in dim light, There's no evidence to show that if you read in dim light, that it's actually going to be harmful. It may make things harder to read, but it's not going to oh. cause long-term loss of vision or worsen mm. your vision in any way. Mm. Um, those are the main ones. Those are all the ones I was raised with. <laughs> <laughs> My mom has to listen to this. <laughs> I love it. But, you know, it's interesting. We hear these as we're growing up and sometimes we haven't heard differently or we're just passing this on to our kids and, you know, just we don't know. And, and it's great to hear this information because then at least we could be educated about the topic and, and know what's right and what's wrong and how we can navigate through this environment with our kids um, to help with their visual health. Absolutely. Yeah. Busting some myths, but maybe, mm -hmm. you know, taking the truth of some of them and teasing yeah, it out and, exactly. and revising some of them. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Um, how can parents that are listening, how can they find you? And um, I know you're on Instagram. Uh, it's Dr. Rani Bannock on Instagram in one word. Yes. I also have um, a Facebook group that I invite people to join called Envision Health, um, E-N, Vision Health. Um, I also have Migraine Group called Ion Migraine. So I share a lot of tips there. It's on Facebook as well. And um, if you're interested, I am about to launch an app on eye health. I'm toying with the title. I may call it Beyond Carrots. I'm not sure yet. <laughs> I don't want to overuse that, but, um, yeah, but it's going to be it. a 21-day eye health challenge. So basically um, on the app, you'll get a, a, a reminder every day for a little tip that you can um, include in your life that you can, uh, you know, just to, to help you promote your eye health. So uh, some of the things we talked about today, like nutrition wise and lifestyle choices, et cetera. But, um, but I'm going to be launching that probably in April, um, that app. And, and so people can definitely connect with me through that. And then my book, which is going to be hopefully coming out soon as well. I can't wait to see that. Thank you for taking the time to chat with us today. And I, I absolutely love the, the information that you're sharing with us on Instagram. And I can't wait to keep learning with you. Oh, thank you so much. And I love your Instagram as well. I always learn things from thank yours. You. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you to everyone who's listening and please take a moment to rate the Curious Neuron podcast and to leave a review and we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye.